So um, here we are, uh, episode 11 of Swift Package Indexing, um, and uh, as usual, I think we should probably start with uh, a bit of site news. Um, I think the biggest news that we have at the moment is um, that we have started the processing of Swift 5.7 builds, which is uh, a big job. We've got, uh, how many builds is it, 1,000, something like that to process? 59,000, actually. Yeah, it's 5,000 packages we have. Uh, five Swift 5.7 builds per version, and every package has at least, well, typically two versions. Um, the one is the yeah. default branch, then there's typically a latest release. Some of them also have a beta release. So we can have one to three versions per package. That means five to 15 uh, 5.7 builds per package, and that then comes out at five fifty nine thousand builds in the backlog. And we are, at this point, I think around 25-ish percent through, almost 30 percent, I think. So it's not... Just and it's been going for going well. about a day and a half at the moment? Yeah. Yeah, a day and yeah. six hours. So it's... Uh... Um, and we're slightly... So when we processed the 5.6 builds, um, we had a little bit more resource to do it with. Uh, because... Yeah. Um, so Max Stadium, uh, well, and uh, Microsoft Azure, actually, both... People, both of those companies provide us very generously uh, hosting resources for our build system. Um, Mac Stadium provides us with um, three Mac minis, uh, and we have um, a big server machine which runs Xcode 12. Uh, we run 12.2 and 12.4, I think. Um, but the Xcode 12 build, uh, Xcodes won't run on Monterey. So we then have a Monterey machine which runs Xcode 13s, which is 13.2 and 13.4, I think. And then we now have the third one running the Ventura beta, um, which is now running the Xcode 14 uh, beta. So when we ran the 5.6 builds, we had two Monterey machines and one Big Sur. And so there were two whole Mac minis to uh, process all of that backlog. Now this entire backlog is going through the one uh, Ventura machine, which is uh, obviously going to half the capacity that we have for, for processing these builds. Yeah. It's, uh, it's unfortunate, but it's, it is the way uh, determined by the, the compatibility of Xcode on different Mac OS versions. Yeah, yeah that is one hardworking Mac Mini, that. <laughs> it's, um, here's actually an interesting thing, uh, and we spoke about this briefly, but I've done some testing in the meantime. Um, a couple of Mac OS versions ago, I think maybe even longer, uh, Apple released a framework called Virtualization, um, which makes it very easy to bring up a virtual machine on on a Mac, and I think that targeted specifically, or it became really easy with, um, I think with the M1s, but it's not it's not M1 only. Um, and this year, they actually published a an example project that that is a little Swift app that you can that you can compile that gives you like a, a I think a, a IPSW picker where you can pick a, a macOS um, image and then spawn a virtual machine off of. So it's it's essentially like a parallels or VMware Lite thing that you can build entirely on, on your own and, and run. You know, there's no purchase or anything required. Um, and a couple of people in the community have gone and built apps around that. And I think one of the most um, prominent ones is Virtual Buddy by um, uh, Bambo, uh, Guillermo uh, Rambo. Um, 
And I've actually installed that or brought that up. Um, I had tinkered with virtualization framework before, but this this app is really nice. It's uh, you know it's open source. There's a release you can download. You can just run it uh, after you've downloaded a uh, an image, or you can have the app download an image. You can spawn a VM off of it, and I've done that because I was interested in finding out. So what they just explained, where once you've updated to uh, Ventura. Release or beta, you can't actually run Xcode 13 on it anymore, and this is going to be a problem for us as we're developing the build system because in our build system, you know, to run the tests, we'll need to be able to run Xcode 13. So I need to figure out at what point I could actually update to Ventura. That's that's was the whole purpose of trying to do this, um, and you know, I wanted to figure out what the performance hit is of that. Um, so I brought up a. I'm currently still on Monterey. I brought up a Monterey virtual machine and I ran some tests and I was really, really surprised. I configured this. So I have a M1 Max with the 10 core M1 Max and I configured a Monterey machine with eight cores. Um, and I ran the server project, which has a compile time of around a minute or almost a minute typically on the M1 Max natively. The best time I actually got when I compiled it on this machine was 50 seconds. 50.2. The best time in that virtual machine was 49.8. <laughs> I I ran this this afternoon. I ran like 20, 30 builds in different configurations. I wanted to figure out how much impact the core count has on the VM. And that is noticeable. But at eight cores, I think that's a good balance because, you know, the host probably still needs a bit of bit of CPU to manage the VM, but I, I I couldn't believe it, but this is not a fluke. I have, you know, they are comparable. You wouldn't be able to tell which one you're running the build mm -hmm. on. It is remarkable yeah. how well, now this is a build, the build runs. I'm not sure how running tests will impact that because that might be more IO, you know, stuff like that will probably, you know, certain things will impact performance more or less in a VM, but a pure build, and this is not, you know, a minute isn't, isn't like a, a short build where you might get, you know, a lot of jitter. The, numbers are quite stable and, and comparable so i was really surprised i expected like 10 percent performance hit at best or 15 or something like that i think it's really interesting and I'm, I'm very encouraged that the performance is so good there is the other aspect of this which is currently it is a quite a simple setup for our uh for our mac build systems they run a version of mac os and we have some versions of xcode installed on them if if we then, if we transition to having the the machines be not actually doing doing any building, if the machines then become virtual machine hosts, um, that does increase the amount of complexity, not enormously, but there is there is some kind of trade off there in complexity yeah. because we then need each machine, and, and also we can't run Big Sur under virtualization. Is that correct? I think that's correct. I I think so. I'm not sure, but in this case specifically, I, I remember reading something. Yeah. That's why I was uncertain no. when they actually started shipping that because I think there's you're right there's a version cutoff with you know you can't go back further is, than yeah. it might it might be um, Monterey yeah but that's not necessarily a, uh, a, a a huge problem forever because we've already dropped five point three yeah. so it, when we when we advanced to five point seven we also dropped five point three yeah. um, so the big Sur machine is only now running the Swift five point four so the next time we drop a version. That big server machine can be repurposed to uh, to help capacity and on the higher the, the, on the higher versions. Yeah. Um, so it's potentially this is potentially something that we could do. Um, but I also know that the stability of um, virtual machines in in and now we're not using this virtualization framework, but 
my experience with stability of virtual machines running for long periods of time has not been brilliant. Yeah. That may be different with this virtualization framework, but it's certainly something that's interesting to, to investigate. Yeah, I mean, I think in this case, now you look, look at our current scenario, I think where this could help isn't just isn't trans transitioning everything into a VM, but it would allow us temporarily to balance our nodes because right now we have one Ventura and two others that can't run any 5.7 builds. We could temporarily deploy a VM on one of the others that run a Monterey, virtualize Ventura, run 5.7 in that until we're caught up and then we just scrap the VM. You know, that's just the thought. That would allow us to temporarily shift our mix of mm -hmm. versions that we support. You know, it, it allow, give us more flexibility in, in deploying the three machines that we have. And, and the, the problem is really that Apple have made this decision to not allow or not support Xcode 13 on Ventura, that's really hurting us here. And, and at least this way we yeah. could recover that. And oh, it's not even it's not even not support, it is it is not allowed. The, 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 it won't it will not run. Yeah. Well isn't there aren't there always some sort of you know you know um, list tweaks oh. you can do or you know <laughs> info P list yeah. things you can you know like <laughs> yeah. little hacks. Yeah. Um but the good news is, is that we are now um, with that backlog of um, Swift 5.7 builds. And uh, if you notice uh, a question mark on the 5.7 uh, part of the build matrix on any packages, that means those builds are, are currently uh, processing or waiting to be processed, should I say. Um, and uh, we should, if, if our calculations, we're only in rough calculations, and of course we don't know because we don't know how big each package is, but we should be finished by either Monday or maybe Tuesday morning or something like that. Yeah, that's the current trajectory. Let's hope it um, stays that way. There is there is a good chance we'll deploy a fix uh, or a change tomorrow that'll deal with the question marks to prioritize um, non-5.7 builds to bring those back online uh, and make that matrix a, yes. bit, a bit nicer. But um, uh, yeah, I think that should work out all right, but um, we'll have to see how that goes tomorrow. It's, it's always a bit daunting to fiddle with these things because you know, that's a... Um, is a complex system. <laughs> so bring on the 5.7 packages. Uh, we are ready, finally. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Oh, um, one thing we should mention with the 5.7 packages, when you are deploying documentation, what that will give you on new versions on the default launch and releases is the new docc um, um, presentation with the sidebar and the search. So that'll be really nice for packages who have adopted our documentation hosting. That'll give you the new version. Um, if you, once the dust has settled, are interested in maybe having that consistent across a couple of back versions as well, maybe ping us and we can see what we can do. Um, as it stands, they will the older versions will remain on the look and feel of the five six generated docs, um, but you know that doesn't necessarily have to be that way. Um, and of course, as your documentation moves forward. Um, there will be less and less people using old versions of your package. And so most people will be seeing the new documentation generated for the new version of Doxy. Uh, but, it, but I understand that it would be nice to, uh, to potentially uh, have that consistent. So let, let us know either on Twitter or we have a Discord. Um, by the way, if anyone doesn't know about our Discord, it's where we discuss contributions to the uh, open source project and also any anything related to the open source project, really. Um, and you can find the link to that Discord in our readme file. Um, there's a permanent invite, just a, an open invite there. So uh, we'd be happy to have more people on the Discord. It's already it's already turned into quite a, um, uh, a I would say, a fairly active uh, 
place to uh, discuss the project. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely have a nice, nice little commute. Um, we do have another little update on uh, another feature that went live yesterday, um, and uh, that is also related to our documentation system. So, um, we heard from a few package authors who. Um, prefer to keep their documentation not hosted with the package index. I can't understand why you would possibly not want to do that. <laughs> I'm kidding, of course, people. I mean, there's lots of different reasons you would want your documentation hosted elsewhere. But currently, all we have is a way to um, link to our own hosted documentation. And so uh, we added a feature yesterday, or deployed a feature yesterday, where um, package authors can now, by using the SPI YAML file in their own package repository, they can give us a URL to send people to where um, their documentation is hosted. And so we'll add that same documentation button on your package page on the package, uh, but it will now, for those packages, redirect people to your documentation instead of ours. Yeah, no, I think that's really nice. Um, you can use ours, um, but you can also link to yours. Yep. Um, and, um, and then as a result of having that feature implemented, uh, we are, the next little bit of that puzzle is we're going to boost, so we have an internal kind of package score um, for every package in the index. Um, and that's not used very much at the moment, but we are planning to, we have plans to um, try and um, uh, quantify the, the kind of maintenance and, and popularity and quality of a package into some kind of package score or something like that. Uh, and we do have this package score behind the scenes and we're, we're about to add, if you have documentation in your package, um, then you will get a boost in your score because that generally is an indicator of, um, uh, if not directly an indicator of quality, it's an indicator that, that of, a, of a well and a kind of well-created package. Um, and no matter whether the Swift package index generates your documentation or whether you have external documentation, all packages that have documentation will get that same score boost. Mm -hmm. But that is not live yet. Right. Yeah. Cool. I think we've... It's, it's actually... I think it's even less... Um, that score is even less used now than it was previously because we used to order our search results by score and now we order them by the work that Joe did on relevance, right? Well, the score is still part of the search. Um, it is. But, you know, it's it's one component of the order by clause so it'll it'll still rank um but it's you know certain matches will propel a package to the front like if you get a direct hit on package name or or direct yeah. hits in in other you know words that stuff will will also influence it so you, you typically see i mean the point is that like popular packages should should rank higher um and you know popularity uh, we use stars as a proxy for that uh, is for that metric as well I think that's probably enough on package index updates. We could very mention that we crossed the threshold of 5,000 packages oh. just yesterday. So thanks everyone who has contributed packages and, and been very active and, and writing them. So that's great. We started out with 2,400 in March 2020. There were, I mean, the, the package index has a bit of a longer history in the form of the SwiftPM library that Dave um, set up, I think, was it like three, three and a half years ago now? It was a year before the package index launched. Yeah. Right. So, but and but when we started, we had a bit of a, a you know validation step and brought the packages down um, by imposing some criteria. So we started out with two thousand four hundred um, just before go live in March twenty twenty, and it's now 
5,000. So that's a nice, nice doubling. And just great. Yeah, yeah. There we go. Shows it shows it's, it's actually it's not so much a statistic for the package index. It is a wonderful um, signal that the uh, Swift package ecosystem is nice and healthy. Yeah, and that has been increasing steadily. I mean, we I did some analysis a while back to see just by querying GitHub for um, repositories that have a package file, package.swift. There are more out there, but it is really, it is really the case. I think the five thousand represent packages that are actually you know real packages. Um, that, yes. that meets certain yeah. minimum criteria. And these aren't onerous criteria, um, you know, like having a product definition or I think we even dropped that one, but. Um, we did, we relaxed that one recently. Yeah, yeah. it has to validate certain certain validation steps. There. And there has been a there has been a rule in there. If, if we may have already removed it, but there, there certainly was a rule in there at one point that we didn't enforce, which was, we said that every package should have a released version, but that's also, that's actually not necessary. Yeah. If we haven't removed that, then we should. No, that's that's actually not not in there anymore. It's gone. Yeah. Okay. Great. Right. All right. Yeah. I think that's it. Isn't it? Quite a quite a longish that's update. All the news. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, who wants to kick it off? Do we have Do we have quiz or do we are we going straight into? Uh... Oh, I didn't have. Yeah, I, sh I didn't even ask for questions because we didn't get any last time. I no might quiz. I might do it again that's... next next time. But I think we've run out of out of questions for the <laughs> people good. listening. If you can think of anything you'd like us to uh, like me to to figure out looking at the um database and, and then quiz Dagobon next time do to ping us on on twitter uh and it's let been us know. it's been a, an enjoyable it's been an enjoyable series of uh, of weeks of of my uh quizzing on the package ecosystem but uh but it's all good things come to an end <laughs> and uh and we're now no longer no longer in quiz mode um, so let's do some packages instead, shall we? Should, do you want to kick us off? Sir? Right, yeah. Um, so the first one I've got this week is called Package Build Info, and it's by Dimitri Borovikov. Um, and this is an interesting plugin. It's one that generates, so this is a build plugin. It generates a package build struct, so a, a source file with a struct in it, which has a static info property. And that info property collects um, information from the repository that you're running in so for instance it has uh, is dirty a boolean you know just like if you ran git status in your or git distrib that's the sort of info you get out of this you get the timestamp of the last commit the uh, total commit count tag the latest if exists count since the tag it's pretty much what git describe would give you um, and this is something that then compiled in your package so it's generated on the fly as you build such that you could, for instance, use it to display a an up to date version string in your app or you know your um, your executable, uh, and that's really nice. I've done this manually in the by you know having it make file driven and in the make file dump out a file. This is actually what we do in the server project. We dump out a a little source file that overrides a dummy file in the project and then gets built into the binary. But this is a a nicer way of doing it. Um, it's actually an interesting package in that it is cross-platform and it's it has a uh, uh, what's called a binary artifact in it. And I thought, hmm, how, how does how does the author create a binary artifact that runs on macOS and Linux um, and other platforms? I'm not sure what the matrix is actually. Let me just see. Oh, it's actually iOS, macOS, watchOS, tvOS. Um, and the way that works, it's a shell script. And that binary <laughs> artifact is a zipped up file in it is a shell script that does the git command and then you know pipes that out into a source file um 
and that's that's quite nice. The only downside is the the source isn't actually in the repository itself, so that that might be something I raised an issue with the author to to see if if that can be done differently. But I thought it was a really interesting way of um, and the new it's using the new obviously the new um, build plugins um, and sort of the really common problem that you want to have up to date version info without having to manually um, you know update that in a file. So I thought it was quite quite a nice package. And that's by and what. What was the name of it again? It's called Package Build Info. And it's by Dimitri uh, Borovikov. Fantastic. Well, um, that is that's very interesting. Although I so I, if the if the binary artifact is a shell script, it mustn't be using that in any form through the build, right? So the build will that's why the build is is uh, succeeding on TVOS and, and iOS and WatchOS, I presume. Yeah, I mean, pure, this is a bit of a question how we actually deal with um, binary compatibility of, or with compatibility of plugins. I'm not even sure how much sense that makes. Um, certainly our build system doesn't reflect the proper integration of a build plugin, right? Because we're building yeah. the package and what that means for a build plugin. I think to be correct we should use it and execute it somehow and i'm not sure how, if how well it should it should be possible to automate that but it, this is certainly certainly something to be investigated how we should deal with um pure build plugins yeah it's it sounds when somebody suggest, and this happened this actually happened we talked a little bit about the swiftpn library which is the precursor to the swift package index when i first launched the swiftpn library um it was uh, helga hess uh who um suggested because we were talking we were, we were discussing on a, a github issue uh whether the that project could potentially pr provide um platform information as in what platforms is it compatible with and uh somebody uh, questioned whether we could provide um linux platform compatibility um and helga uh, came up and suggested well why don't we just build everything <laughs> <laughs> and that is a it's a wonderfully simple idea <laughs> Um, and it turns out we actually eventually, a couple of years later, we did end up building everything. But um, it's a, it's one of those those ideas which is very easy. In fact, it's like three or four words. Why don't we just build everything? Yeah. Um, but uh, but it's a little it's a little more complicated when you actually think about okay, well, how would we build everything? <laughs> yeah, it's. Um... I don't know about you, Sven, but did you imagine building an, uh, a CI system to build every Swift package? Uh, I didn't. Well, I'm glad it's not really a CI system because the testing bit would be. Madness. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's it, a whole different level. But yeah, it's it's sort of the thing that seems it's easy enough to get started. And by the time you are yes. half into it, well, not even half, but by the time you've started it, you you kind of see the end of the the light at the end of the tunnel, and, and you sort of just keep on going. There's always enough to to give you hope that you might make it to the end. Um, but you know that's that's how you end up with it. Um, but yeah, testing would be a whole different, like a full CI system is, is like really that's would. a daunting task. Yeah. yeah, I don't think that's a task that we're going to tackle at least in the short term. Yeah, yeah. All right. So I have a slightly uh, less serious package for my first um, uh, package uh, suggestion today. Uh, it is called. Oh, I've uh, navigated away from it. Sorry. Oh, here it is. It's called Deck UI uh, by Josh Holtz. Um, and, well, the, the description of this uh, sums it up pretty nicely. It's a Swift DSL for writing slide decks in Xcode. 
<laughs> so if you are bored of using notes, you may have switched to using something like um, Dexet, which uses a markdown file to produce uh, a slideshow. Um, uh, and if you are tired of using a markdown file to generate your presentations, you could use Swift. Um, so <laughs> I think, I mean, I'm sure Josh intends this to be a real package because it is a real package. It does exactly what he says it will do. I'm not sure how many people are actually going to write uh, slide decks in um, Swift, but it's effectively a Swift UI based uh, slide um, uh, um, composition um, engine. Um, so you can, you can create a deck and give it a title inside that deck you can slides and give them titles and give them columns and give them flip points and give them images um and then you can run your uh your uh your remote app your, your your deck app and it will present your slideshow to the world um i was at a conference last week in uh, in wales in uh Aberystwyth, and um i don't think anybody used this but maybe they did <laughs> i had seen this and I, I love it this is like the procrastination is like you know it's a it's a field day you can you know you can sit down and have to actually prepare a talk and spend all your time fiddling with the <laughs> with swift ui and compiler errors and stuff like I that wonder, isn't that amazing <laughs> I, I wonder if you've hit on something there as we spent i wonder if this project exists because josh had to make a presentation <laughs> I, uh, that's you can totally see that right i mean <laughs> I might uh, I might uh, drop him a message and ask him if that was the case. Yeah. <laughs> it's really great. Um, but I, I also love I love a couple of things about the README. Um, there are some other subheadings in the README. For example, the documentation subheading says 100% not documented. <laughs> um, performance, probably bad and never production ready. Please only use DeckUI for a single presentation and never at scale. I, I, I love the whole thing. It's, it's great. <laughs> it's, it is really great. And it looks, I mean, it's not just, it has a lot of stuff. No. It, it's really... Uh, and that's why I hesitated. I, I almost called it like a, a, a joke, but it's not a joke. It is a real thing. <laughs> I, I think it's, this has been used in earnest. I mean, it has all the trappings of actually having been deployed in, in the field. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm confident he, uh, he has used it at some point. Yeah. Fantastic. Oh, look at that. It's got theming. That's fantastic. And then, then you have <laughs> yeah. built this thing and they give you a different machine and it doesn't run. Yeah, that's... Uh, <laughs> fantastic. Right. Um, should I field my second pick? Absolutely. It is called Swift Math Parser. It's by Brad Hose. Is it Hose or how? Uh, let me load it up. Math Parser. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, Math Parser. Okay, so uh, the one the Math Parser I got was by Dave DeLong. Uh, is it Math Hyphen Parser? It's Swift Math Parser, Swift Dash Math Dash Parser. Got it. Yeah, but Hows, probably. Hows, okay. Um, yeah, this is really nice. This is using Point Freeze uh, Swift Parsing Package, which which I totally recommend. We're actually using that in a couple of places. But the interesting thing here is that you can you can parse um, math expression four times sine of t times pi plus two times sine t times pi. That's an expression here with parentheses and stuff. Um, just typed out like that. Um, and you can stick that string into this and it passes out all the symbols. It does the computation as well. It can evaluate that um, for t. So you can actually substitute variables and stuff like that. So th this is this is really nice. And if you're if you're sort of writing a pcalc competitor, <laughs> that might be that might come in handy. Or maybe you can even tie that together with the 
um, packages or package we talked about last time, which was uh, Solver Core. There might be something there. Um, you know, you can combine certain things. This is really interesting. You know, the stuff that you can do here to 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 effectively have like a full full fledged um, math expression parser. And he says. Um, one of the original goals of this parser was to be able to accept the world from alpha math expressions as is. Um, and he doesn't say how far he got with it, but by the looks of it, it does actually accept quite a lot of, of um, you know, functions and, and symbols. So looks like it's pretty, pretty extensive. Yeah, that's so, yeah. It's, it's really interesting that um, we've covered both uh, this one and also the the, the solver um, solver and the what was it called solver string parser or something like that, um, which both do not exactly the same thing. They are quite uh, they are quite different, but they are certainly tangentially related. Yeah. Yep. There you go. Swift math parser by Brad House. Um, yeah, fascinating. I uh, I I hadn't spotted that one, uh, so that's that's uh, that was new to me as well. Um. When we discussed earlier today uh, this, that we were going to do the, the Twitter space tonight, I said that uh, I think we might have a, uh, a clash, and we haven't had it so far. I thought this might be your first, so it's, I was going to make it my second. Um, the package is Mark Codable. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I thought that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> which I felt sure you would pick. Um, so, again, this, at first glance, this may sound like a joke. <laughs> I assure you this is not. It works. Um, so it's basically it is Swift codable, so you can uh, you can read and write from your uh, from for, from a codable source, um, and the storage of that codable or the format of that codable is Markdown. So what effectively happens is it creates a Markdown table. So that is with pipe characters to um, uh, distinguish between columns in the table, and then uh, the header row is distinguished with also pipe characters, but then dashes to give um, to give a, a, a distinction between header rows and data rows and you can uh you can write and read your data from a markdown file now there's obviously a limited scope of when you would actually do this but there are some instances where you want to very quickly get data in and out of an application in some way and also have that data be human readable and writable in a text editor that is a it's not something that you would use potentially every day but it is a real use case, and this is a real issue, no matter how um, ridiculous it sounds. <laughs> yeah, it's like this is such. It is actually on my extended list, so I always have some some <laughs> in the in the back. But um, so this is by Marin Todorov. Oh, yes, I and, um, that. <laughs> yeah, and I mentioned this because I had been in touch with Marin for for other reasons. He was contributing to the package index, and we had a chat, and he mentioned that he was going to do this, and I thought at the time. What on earth is he thinking? Yes. <laughs> and and I he explained. I said, "Well, huh? I I just couldn't wrap my head around it." And then I saw it, and I still couldn't wrap my head around it. And I said, "But it it does make sense in exactly those cases where you have a a smallish set of data." And I actually, after the fact, I sort of realized a use case where a friend of mine was looking to build a small app, um, and he has some data storage, and he asked me what he should do for data storage, and was looking at core data and I said, well, how much are you going to, how much data are you going to store and how are you going to query it? And effectively he was going to store like less than 10 items and right. he wouldn't query across items. He would effectively load everything every time. And I said, 
you don't really want core data, you just want to store a JSON blob. And, and that would work, but this might actually be a good solution for, for that because then it's more readable for you as, as you develop, or you might switch over, you know, like in, in testing, you, you might use more codable, but for actual, you know, for the app, you might use JSON as the, right. the backing yeah. store. This is quite interesting as a tool because JSON isn't super readable, right? If you, if you work with JSON, you know, you can find stuff, but you, I always pipe it into a tool that, that formats it. So you can actually read it a bit better, but even then it's, it's very nested. Um, and our codable then is, is really nice to, to look at it and edit it. And I had the same reaction to you when I first saw this. I, I, I genuinely thought it was a, a, a joke package. I'm, I wasn't even <laughs> sure whether it was real, <laughs> uh, whether it actually did the thing that it, it said it would do. Um, uh, but it's um, uh, but it is, and, and it, it, it does work. I haven't, I haven't used it, but, I, but I, I'm confident that it works well. Um, the other one, just while we're on the subject of, of quick and easy data storage, uh, which is halfway in between um, a JSON file, which, as you say, a file is is technically human readable, but there are nicer formats for a human to read than JSON. Um, uh, but actually, a very nice format, which is natively supported by Codable as well, is plist, um, because every Mac has a very pleasant to use plist editor, um, and you can read and write plist files as as Codable objects without any uh, additional or dependencies or anything like that. And those yeah. PLS files are very nicely editable uh, as long as you have a Mac, which most people who are using Swift do. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's actually, yeah, that's not, that's not used a lot. We, we sort of, everyone defaults to JSON for for yes. some reason. I mean, it's, it is ubiquitous and, and the, the support everywhere, you know, you have lots of tools to process or you know, visualize JSON. But um, PLS actually is an interesting format. Yeah. Many, many years ago, when I used to, teach uh, people to, to write um, uh, applications in Objective-C, um, core data on a, on a four-day course where you have to go from learn, knowing no Objective-C to being able to write uh, an application, adding core data into those four days is a, is a, is a, big, uh, <laughs> it's a big topic to cover when, when three days ago you didn't know Objective-C. Um, and so I didn't, I didn't use core data in the course. And what I did use with data storage was plist files. And they can take you they can take you quite a long way, uh, as long as all of your data can fit in memory, and as long as it's not, um, uh, you, you know, relational rather than hierarchical. Um, yeah. You can do, you yeah. can go a long way with a plist file. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Cool. Um, right. I think is that both? Are we both done? I, I think that's it. Yeah, I've got. I mean, I always have a couple more, but I think we're. Me too. We're, well, we're, well, maybe within our forty-five minutes. minutes. Yeah. Maybe next time. Yeah. Um. Great. Well, thank you so much for uh, everyone who has tuned in today and uh, given us a listen. Uh, I hope you found a new package or uh, something interesting in what we were talking about with our build system. Um, and we will do another one of these, as usual, in two weeks' time on, uh, well, I don't know what it will be, but it will be um, the start of October, I would imagine. 29th? Uh, 29th. Oh, I, yeah. I'm, in, I'm, I'm traveling on the 29th. So we, we, we may play with the schedule a little bit because I'm not, not in the country on the 29th. All right. Okay. Let's see where we land. Yes. So oh, it may nice. be it may be the, uh, the the week after that we do it on the sixth of uh, October. Right. Okay. Great. Well, Thank thanks you, everyone. everyone. Thanks for and, listening, uh, and see you all here next time. Right, Cheers. Bye bye.